Welcome to Too Deep Hokies Under the Influence. My name is Pete Berthaud, and my co-host is Robbie Dowling. I think we're a little bit less excited than we were on the last podcast after the Battle of Bristol. Robbie, how are you feeling today? My voice is starting to come back, which I lost <laughs> in the first quarter, and I think that was that was it. I'm doing doing all right. Glad to be back. It was a long stay in Bristol, but a lot of fun. It was a ton of fun. We're going to detail the atmosphere in Bristol, the game, and why I might feel a little foolish after our last pod. But before we get into everything, we need Robbie to give us a cheers. I'll cheers it up to Bristol and the game. I thought the atmosphere was incredible. Everything from what you could do during the day, all the vendors, the it was basically a fair that they had at right outside the stadium. The fans were great on both sides. The UT fans were great. Most of them, I ran into a few troublemakers here and there, but I'm sure they ran into a few troublemakers on our side. Overall, there were some issues with Bristol, the actual event of the game, but we'll go into that a little bit and give people some insight into what happened, boots on the ground. I thought it couldn't have been more incredible. It looked great on TV. It looked even better in person, and they did a great job with it. So I'll cheers it up to the Bristol crew for putting on a great event in the Motor Speedway and making it feel a lot like a football game when it probably shouldn't have. Yeah, cheers to that. Cheers to Bristol. Wow. Yeah, man. I mean, you said it best. The atmosphere was so good. 156.990 was the number that I saw on the telecast when I got home. That is an incredible amount of people. And regarding the stuff as far as what they might have done wrong. There was a few communication issues and how to get to the stadium. And we got stuck behind the vol walk coming from, I guess the South side. And you know, one person would tell you go this way. And one person would tell you go that way. But ultimately we had to wait till the, all the vol players went in and then we followed this massive Tennessee fans in. But for the most part, everything was done right. We got over to the fan fest with a few hours before the game and got some beers. I saw Bruce Taylor, our former linebacker, handing out hula hoops, and people were like doing a hula hoop contest. It was just a lot of fun over there. I couldn't believe a a lot of things. One, we made the mistake of showing up at game day right before the picks. Obviously, that's the part everybody wants to be at. I didn't know you were going to be able to drink beer in the crowd. I told everybody we should go over as late as possible because you're not going to be able to drink beer. People were showing up with 24-packs, and parking right in the middle of game day. <laughs> and I think that's probably two weeks in a row that game day is allowed beer because it was at Lambeau before that, right? Oh, so, that's right, yeah. So two weeks in a row you could drink beer at game day as opposed to on, on campus. Otherwise, we would have been there earlier. That was fantastic. One thing I learned also, I, I, and to build off that, is like it was kind of a free-for-all. Like There were some rules and regulations, but for the most part, you could kind of do whatever you wanted, whether it was outside or inside, especially drinking. I mean, you could carry your cups, your beer cans, just about anywhere. No one's going to say a word. And then once we got in, you know, in Blacksburg, you walk to the top of the aisles of the concourse. They're like, go to your seats, go to your seats. 
I was walking around the concourse. People were dancing the aisles. Like it didn't matter. Like you could do pretty much whatever you wanted inside the game as well, which I kind of love. It was like nothing I've ever seen. The atmosphere inside the stadium, every everything from the beginning with the USA signs, which magically were spelled out USA perfectly. I don't think there was a <laughs> gap in the whole thing, and I looked at cool. it pretty closely. The atmosphere is great. More, more to the point, which is probably not a very popular opinion. I didn't think the seats were that bad. I thought I was expecting horrible because we had talked about it so much going into the game, and most people, I think, going into the game knew they were going to be bad. I know the media seats were really, really bad. I saw pictures from that, but yeah, I couldn't see a lot of what was happening on the field. I probably watched twenty five percent field play and 75% on Colossus is how I would say it was probably for me. Yeah. I'd have to say the same thing. You could, you really couldn't see anything depth wise, like with how far a guy was running, you could see the bodies, you could see people moving around, but you had to watch Colossus, the giant jumbotron in the middle of the field. If you really wanted to see uh, how many yards you were gaining or whatever, um, but overall, the, the thing was amazing. I, I, was, I worded it to someone else in that I looked across the stadium because we were in one of the end zones. And you're looking at this giant full stadium. And it looked like you were watching a stadium in a movie where they like did CGI. Like It was so impressive how many people, how packed the stands were. It was just awesome. And we were definitely outnumbered. <laughs> I would definitely say that. It, I'm thinking about 65, 35. Was that your estimate? That's exactly it. And I looked at how, because the fans were separated. That's what they did for this game. So there was a Hokie side and a V and a UT side. And I tried to estimate based on the stadium. And I came out about the same numbers as that. So probably either 70, 30, 65, 35, based on where the breaks in the fan base were. UT section was obviously much, much larger and, you know, other than the logistics of getting in there, which were a disaster, our badges didn't get scanned and we didn't go through That's a single wild. elect. Yeah, we didn't go through a single metal detector the whole way in because it was so packed at the we were getting in right before game time. And lastly, and I think we can move on from it was I ended up sitting next to one of our listeners, Lucas, who we were cheering. I went there with Eight JMU alumni, one UVA alumni, and I was the only Virginia Tech guy, as as weird as that is, the kids I grew up with. And I saw him. He saw my shirt. We started talking about the key play, and I realized he was one of our listeners. So I had an ally to, to chat football with during the game, which was awesome. That is awesome, man. I, I do need to give a shout-out to the people I was with because – I rode down in an RV. I picked up people in Arlington. I picked up people in Blacksburg. And the crew I was with was just so awesome. Our neighbors at our campsite was awesome. But Nicole, Emmy, Karen, Ron, Carly, and Brian, who are in my RV, some of the best people. We had a great time. Some of them are very dear friends. Some of them I got to know a lot better over a two-day tailgate getting sunburnt and drinking way too many beers. It was just an incredible time. But I think we should probably start talking about the game. Let's do it. All right. The way we decided to do this is we wanted to kind of go through the game and what happened and then give our you know our observations after the fact. And that first quarter, Robbie, 
I was just blown away with how well we came out. I'm not sure I've seen a tech team come out and have three drives against a defense of this caliber in, in forever. I mean, our first drive went right down the field. Sly, unfortunately, missed that field goal. Then we got them three and out. Canham has the sack. Our second drive, Sam Rogers, the playmaking ability we always knew he had, just comes right back. He has two great plays, including the touchdown. And then the third drive, the McMillan, just around the corner, that speed, man. He he puts his hand down on the guy's helmet, just inches away from him, and then down the sideline. I mean, that was so impressive. I remember thinking as that play was was happening, that is what I want to see from this team. It was so well orchestrated. The block was so well done on the pin-in block into the into the defensive line. It looks so pretty, and he had so much space and so much speed. That That's everything I want to see from this team, the big play ability. And the last time I can remember, granted, I was in person, being that excited about a play very similar was Sam Rogers down the left-hand side of the field against Ohio State. Yep. And that was exactly a year prior or to a couple days a year prior, and I was juiced up. That looked great. Yeah, it was an incredible first quarter. We were four or five on third downs, and we held UT to 28 yards in that first quarter. Unfortunately, as soon as the second quarter started, we had the fumble, which was kind of a bot snap Evans to CJ Carroll situation, and it just, they picked it up. They scored on the very next play, and we got the ball. Went three and out. They got the ball back again. Within like three minutes, four minutes, they had two touchdowns. All of a sudden, it's 14-14. And at that point, you could kind of feel the the emotion getting sucked out of not only the fans, but the team. I 100% agree. The the game changer for, I think, what happened, and it's probably a good time to hit it, was the fumble, then the ten- teller penalty on the block below, below the waist. And after that, everything, the, the wind came out of the sails. Yeah, and, it was any time we started to get a little momentum in that second quarter and into the third quarter, it was promptly stopped by either another fumble or another unsportsmanlike conduct, uh, you know, chop block, whatever you want to call it. We had that 11-yard punt in the second quarter, uh, a roughing the passer. You know, it, it was just unbelievable. Um, even McMillan, you know, he had that great run, and he was looking good in that first half. He had a couple of nice plays eliminated by those penalties. And right before the end of the half, UT scores less than a minute left, and they go up 24-14. to 14, And... It was just rough because, you know, Dobbs had half of his passing yards for the entire game on his first two touchdown passes. And we knew that he couldn't pass that well. He only ended up with like 90 yards the whole day. But now we're down 24-14 at the half, and he's looking like a world beater with the, with through the air. And they beat Stroman on that long pass. Those were – those passes were absolute dimes. I couldn't believe uh, – a passing quarterback of his caliber, which is not a high-end passing quarterback, managed to put those two in perfect position for wide receivers to go get them. 
I, I don't know how to explain that. I can't explain that. I don't think he could if he really reflects on it at night and sits there and goes, I had two of probably his best passes that he'll have all season against us in that game. It was frustrating because Strowman's coverage was not that bad on the passes. He was right there, man. And Strowman is just – he's not tall enough to, to make that. And he still put good defense on even not being tall enough. It just wasn't enough. He didn't have a chance. Yeah, I mean, UT really couldn't really sustain anything. They just – honestly, they got a little lucky. They, they had some – a couple of nice plays. They didn't convert a third down until Dobbs' TD rush at the end of that half. Uh, it, it, it was crazy. We still outgained them in yardage, 400 to 330. We outgained them in passing. We had – we went 20 for 28. They went 10 for 19. There, it was the rushing, 239 to 186. Six, you know, the penalties, we know. And one turnover to five turnovers. If I had to summarize at a high level before we get into the details of what we think about it, the stats are incredible because we had them in almost so many categories until we started making mistakes. I think of it less. There were some very nice plays by UT there was a very nice strategy to go back to the run with with Jalen Hurd and Dobbs that, that I think that influenced the game a lot. But we hurt ourselves in this game versus getting beat, and that's always frustrating and why a lot of fans, I think, walked away from this game so angry. Not necessarily that we should have beaten them, but we had the chance to if we didn't hurt ourselves. Absolutely. That third quarter, the fourth quarter, and it's kind of funny. You get – you got to halftime watching that game. At least I did on the rewatch, and I think you felt the same way. And it's like, I don't really need to see anymore because you could tell by watching it, like, our team wasn't emotionally ready to come back. And we made some decent plays in the second half. There was, you know, there was a couple of nice runs by McMillan. There was, uh, you know, we stuffed them a few times. But then Mahota went out and, uh, Trevon Hill had a bad read. Dobbs gets down the field. Kamara scores on a short pass after that in the third. They go up 31-14. That kind of felt like a dagger. If, if 24-14 didn't feel like a dagger, that certainly did. And then there was a point in the game where we went 22 minutes or so without an actual first down. Like we had, you know, the first down at the end of the first quarter. We didn't pick up another first down until like towards the very end of the third that wasn't from a pass interference call. Like we didn't get an actual first down and we ended up kicking a field goal on that drive. 31, 17, the fourth, you know, Mook got the interception. It gave us this slight glimmer of hope, but then he goes and slaps a kid in the face on the sideline. Every time we had momentum, it just got killed by something or another. Evans did pick up the third and 12, a little bit later in the fourth, which was pretty cool. And then on the next play, Sam Rogers gets a first down. And on the next play, Isaiah Ford gets a first down. So we literally get three plays in a row with four first downs. Guess what happens after that? A fumble. It, the, the Cam Phillips fumble, have, it's just like it happened again and again and again. It was so brutal. Mook Reynolds should have slapped somebody in the second quarter and we would have won this game. <laughs> that's not a joke. That's reality. And it'll tie into one of my negatives uh, that I'm going to go into about this game. And I think it's really important is that, that 
that actually, what transpired after that happened, I think was a direct result of somebody finally showing some energy for good or for bad. I don't want to see more penalties, but I'll tell you what, if we only had three penalties, would I have taken that as the fourth and gotten some energy in this team in the second quarter? Absolutely. It was dead on that field for almost two and a half quarters, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, I said 22 minutes without a legitimate first down and without same thing without any fire from the team, it seemed like. So, before, like, let's just close this this game out so we can move on. But there was a long Dobbs run for the last TD they scored. Uh, on our next possession, there was another bad snap. UT recovered that. Uh they had a touchdown on the next on the next play, another run from Tennessee. Um, and I guess the last good thing that happened in the game was our last drive where Shy McKenzie had a few nice plays and scored a touchdown. And then uh, Timmy Settle had a uh, tackle for a loss at the very end. But the game ended. It was 45-24. We lost, you know, three touchdown loss. But I think... If it had to be summed up, we we know how it got summed up. There there was one major thing that caused us to lose that game the way that we did, and it was the turnovers. You're probably not going to like this, but I'm going to get a little nitpicky with some things and let you react to them. I think we're let's go through the negatives and we'll end on a positive note. How about that? In Sounds a loss, good. I don't know if that's a great way to go, but we'll do it. We're not creating a lot of space on the long passes, which is forcing Gerard Evans to be really accurate. And as we alluded to in the first podcast, he's not there right now. I don't think he's as comfortable in the pocket. He's certainly not comfortable in the pocket under pressure. And I think we saw that he sometimes scrambles and makes the right decision. But other than that one pass, which I give him a lot of credit for right up the middle. And I can't remember who's who it was to when he took that big hit and delivered the pass. Other than that, on the long passes, if we can't create space with our wide receivers, we're going to be in trouble down the field. And not necessarily that we need that, but if we are going to go deep, I think that's going to be a challenging point for us. I think the next, our option pitches are abysmal. And I'm not talking they, – they don't even look close on the outside. Gerard really needs to work at looking at whether or not he should be holding or pitching and at least getting it in the right place at the right time. I think we're having trouble with the mesh point, but that was obvious with the C.J. Carroll situation. We we are having trouble holding onto the football. That's just easy to understand. Everybody – I think I think we had everybody on the team fumble in this game, which was <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I mean the, the turnover margin was five to one, and they were all there was no interceptions from from Evans, but the fumbles came in in different capacities. You know, we we had two bad snaps. We had Trayvon looking like he might have got knocked out for a second. We had Cam Phillips and then Stroman on the sideline. I mean, every single way you can fumble the football. We accomplished, and, and no, that I, was that right. was the difference to me. I, and I hear what you're saying um, with with the Evans stuff and stuff, but offense to me, it, it really wasn't the problem. Um, it's weird to say that when you're having bad snaps, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. I agree, and I think there's a general energy problem in this team, and not that they're not 
putting in energy. But when they get down, they get really down. And we're high. We are really high. You don't go up 14 nothing against this team unless you have basically a bipolar team to let that happen. And it starts and ends with two people, and that's Gerard Evans and Justin Fuente. For Evans, he's already stated that he's an emotional player, which is good to the positive, but it's also him learning, which he will with time, how to control those emotions and lead a team. And when they are in the dumps, he needs to be the person slapping people in the face on the sideline or helmets and saying, we can do this, we are going to do this. And Justin Fuente finding a way to inspire his players and keep them from getting down. And it started as early as the first and one on the first drive, and we didn't we didn't go for it. And did it matter in the first quarter? No, but I think it uh, it impacted the rest of the game. Even though things went positively after that, that we should have gone for. If you're coming you're out that, that fourth and one early yeah. on. Yeah, where we ended up trying to kick, what was it, a 47-yard field goal and missing it and walking away with zero points. Sometimes Fuente is going to have to fire, find a way to take a chance and inspire his guys as well. I mean, that's, that's also an important part of the game. That was frustrating to me. I thought they should have gone for it. But there, there's little things from the energy standpoint that we have to be able to become a balanced team. And if you want to see what happens – when you come out with resolve and want to win, look no further than what FSU did. Coming back by a billion in that game last against week Ole Miss, yeah. against Ole Miss and doing it. It was an impressive comeback. You're right. And that's the kind of thing. When you are having hard times and you can't seem to hold on to the football, you need to find a way to get it together. And I think Fuente said that or was at least indicating it when we were going to the half. And we just couldn't pull ourselves out of whatever rut we were in. And, you know, some of it's just bad luck. And some of it is, you know, like you're saying, it's about it, – it's it's that intangible. It's the spirit. It's the fire, whatever you play with. But if the negatives were the turnovers and the negatives were the emotion of the team, let me just finish off with a couple more, you know, more tangible negatives. And that would be the penalties. I mean, there were so many, the unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. And there was even a point where Reeves Maben decked one of our guys, absolutely decked one of our linemen. They picked up the flag. And on the very next play, we get an unsportsmanlike conduct. It's not like Tennessee had, you know, they had six penalties themselves. We had eight. It's just that it always seemed like ours were so much worse than theirs. And it was just another momentum killer. Allowing Dobbs to go for 106 on the ground, two touchdowns and a seven-point yard, 7.6-yard per carry average is like – that's exactly what we couldn't do in this game if we were going to win, and we did it. And the miss from Sly, you don't want to see him miss that 47-yarder. You know, I'm not going to fault a college kicker for missing nearly a 50-yard field goal, but like right at the beginning, he, he is good enough to make that and – it, I, I was a little surprised we missed that one. And we did score two times after that, but you don't know how any one little thing can change the game. And also the last negative I had was Tennessee was 5 of 5 in the red zone. It would have been nice to be 4 of 5, 3 of 5, but they every time they got down there, they scored. And it was usually like in one play. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And to finish on the positive note, 
I actually had a fair amount. A lot of them that we've covered. Hold on. Hold on. Let's. Oh, you got. You're not. You're not done. No. 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 Oh. Let's. Bef- let's. Can we drown our sorrows of the negatives? <laughs> we in, absolutely in, can. In a beer break, and then come back to the positives. Let's do it. All right, buddy. What are you having over there? Right now, I'm going with the Terrapin High Five IPA. It's out of Athens, Georgia. It's actually quite refreshing. It's a canned beer. I've been trying to do a lot more of the canned beers. All the craft breweries love them. They're actually more expensive, I've learned, over time to make than a bottled beer, which I never would have imagined. But it's it's actually really nice. It has a nice kind of soft... Uh, I don't know, uh, hoppiness to it. It's not a high alcohol content beer. It's only about 6%. But I like it a lot. It's kind of a summery beer, even though we're running towards the end of that and moving into pumpkin beers pretty quickly here. How about yourself? Dude, I love the high five. That's a great beer. I've had it many times. And you're right. It is, it's a perfect you know, summertime IPA. I am having, per listener request, uh, Samuel Adams Oktoberfest. Now, that's not the most unique beer we've ever had in the podcast, but um, at Wise Hokey, his name is Randy Phillips, he suggested, you know, I always know it's football season when I'm drinking a Sam Adams Oktoberfest, and I, for one, have always been a huge fan of the Oktoberfest. I look forward to it every year. And as we all know, hopefully most of the people out there who love, love drinking beer have had plenty of them. As Sam Adams describes it, it's a hearty and smooth, deep malt complexity with a little bit of roasty sweetness, and it is. It's a perfect fall, easing your way into the colder months beer, and I'm having a Sam Adams Oktoberfest. It's delicious. I like it. Let's get back to those positives. Bring us up a notch before we start talking about BC. All right. Uh, I'll go through these, probably take as much time. Uh, As the negatives, I actually thought there were a lot of positives that came out of this game, even outside of the the stats that we put up in the first quarter. I like the diversity of the plays that we continue to show, even those that were different than we showed against Liberty. We had some pop passes that, in fact, the one, the pop pass to Rogers, one was over the top. There was another pop pass. I I like that move, and it gives Gerard Evans an ability to, to take pressure and get the ball out of his hands quickly. I'll love the option when we figure out how to make it work. Hodges or Hodges uh, flexing in the back. I thought that was a unique look given his size, his stature, the fact that he's a pretty hard hitter when somebody tries to take him down. I think that offense right now we're asking our players to do a lot and a lot of different schemes, a lot of different plays. But when it starts to come together, damn, if I would be scared to take on this offense when this is humming because it is so mixed up and can be so mixed up in a lot of different ways. That was really excited to me. Evans, as much as I was criticizing him earlier during the negatives, he is a bear to take down. Some of those plays where he was up the middle, he was dragging two at one point, three UT defenders for an extra yard or two. Granted, he there was, was getting, that one with the big pile, and they're all pushing him, and he just kept going and going. I mean, he he's a load, man. I can't believe, and I should have recognized it from his size, his stature. I knew he was a big guy. 
I couldn't believe where he was pulling Logan, Logan Thomas moves. Well, not even as big as Logan Thomas was. He's going to be a bear to take down. Rodgers ran the ball really well in this game in comparison to what we said in the in the first game because Well do you mean running after a catch? Yes. Do you mean running from yeah. You just mean handling the football and running at the ball. Yeah. Correct. And I think we put him I think week one, and again, this is gonna be my opinion, maybe wrong, maybe right. And week one we didn't want to show off our full game plan and we had Rogers acting as running back, basically, to begin the game. It slowly transitioned. It went to McMillan. And uh, it, I think we have Sam Rogers in this game against UT in his perfect position of what he should be doing for this offense. And he handled it very, very well. And it was really exciting to see because I think that's where he is the most dynamic and can do the best for, for the team. McMillan was grinding hard for yards. He may not have had an elite day, but he was trying to drive people. He was trying to earn back his number one position or at least demonstrate that he should be out there. And granted, there were some there were some mishaps that happened. We all understand that. But he looked like he was pushing really hard. And Shai McKenzie looked frightening when he came in the game. There were a few plays where he bowled some people over. Absolutely destroyed some people. And I know you love Shy and I wasn't as high on Shy until I saw this this game and I watched it on TV. That is a frightening man. And if he's coming at you, you know he's getting three, four yards past wherever you hit him almost every time, it seems like. So there's a couple. I have a couple more, but what are your thoughts? What what do you think? Well, was here's what I'm thinking. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about Evans because this is something we got here with this quarterback. And he might have missed that longer pass to Isaiah where he had beaten Cam Sutton, was wide open, and then the pass came up short and you know, Sutton ended up breaking it up. But that was a short touchdown if, if Evans puts that a little bit farther. 20 for 28, another touchdown, some nice runs, as you mentioned. And, you know, building on last week, four touchdown passes – his QBR against Tennessee, which is the metric that ESPN, it's an advanced metric for quarterback play that ESPN does exclusively, was better than it was against Liberty. And right now in QBR, Gerard Evans is 26th in the nation. Now, I know it's two games, but his accuracy, his size, the way he runs the ball, this we got something here in this quarterback. This is a good quarterback. He he might already be better than Logan Thomas ever was. I mean, Logan Thomas had a great 2011, but he only regressed from there. I like what I'm seeing from Gerard Evans a lot. To say to build on the McMillan thing as well. You said he didn't have elite day. On paper, he had an elite day. The problem was most of it came from one run, 127 yards, a touchdown, and 9.1 yards per carry. That is amazing. His speed, the way he eases through holes and always ends up with more yards than he think he's going to. I, I'm just always been impressed with McMillan. And today, or I'm sorry, the you know Saturday when he he proved it to me all over again because we were a little you know I, I wasn't going to hold my breath or you know hold my nose at him because of what happened on you know against Liberty. I said I always have faith in McMillan. You know, based on what he did last year, the way he makes it look so effortless. 
I thought he did some really nice things in the game, and he would have had even more yards if it wasn't for some of those penalties and stuff. You already talked about Sam. I won't go into that. I like what I saw from Shy, But I'm going to give Cam Phillips a shout-out too. Seven catches, 77 yards on a day where Isaiah Ford, and maybe maybe I jinxed him, didn't have the greatest day. He could have had a huge day if he catches that first touchdown like I mentioned earlier. But, you know, Phillips, seven for 77, some nice catches. If it wasn't for that fumble, you know, we'd be singing his praises a little bit, a little bit more. I'm still singing his praises because he is perfect for for what we need in in terms of the eyes are all on Isaiah Ford. So and Bucky. And Bucky for that matter. And he has an ability to really shine this year. And we said it in our season preview that I said I thought I want I thought Cam Phillips was going to be a breakout this year because everybody's going to be looking at Ford. I think he absolutely can a little bit better on holding on to the football and he'd be off to even an even greater start than he already is to the season. I have tremendous confidence in him. If we put him in the right places to make catches and gain extra yards, I think he can do great this year. He was one of the absolute positives coming out of this outside of the fumble. That was it. He's had ball security issues in the past, too, and that's something that doesn't go away very easily. If he can clean it up, he will have a huge year in the slot or as that you know, little X-factor receiver we've been looking for. Defensively, Kenna Canham, five tackles, 1.5 sacks. He was a beast in this game. The defensive line in general had a nice game. Uh, Motua Puaka, nine solo tackles, 15 total tackles. And a tackle for loss. I know we've been hard on him, and I'm not breaking down every single second of film like like French or other people. But if someone makes 15 total tackles in a game, it seems to me they had a pretty nice game. Right, they were running the ball a lot with Dobbs, and when he was when he was taken off, and a lot of them with Hurt as well. That led to some of that. I think he had a few missed, but the point of this is is there's going to be a few missed when you have that many that many instances to be have to be in the right position at the right time and make the right tackle he's really increased his football IQ from last year to this year which is what we wanted to see we came into this saying this year saying we wanted to see him be better just be smarter be in the right place he was in the right place now it's being in the right place and making every tackle, which is incredible because he would have had even more than you said. I think he made a lot of improvement, and I'm excited to see what he keeps doing throughout the year. And he deserves some props. I want to give Mook a shout-out, too. He did he did push that guy on the sideline, got the personal foul, but he had a tackle for a loss, and he did have our only turnover of the game with the interception. and. Through the first two games, I love the way Mook is playing, and if he's going to play with some emotion, I'm all about that too. The defense as a whole, seven tackles for loss. We've got a couple of sacks. A nice game by this D. You said it in, in the middle of uh, our, our rundown, 330 total yards given up to you know a high-caliber SEC team. Be it as it may, they might not pass the ball that well. That's legit, and this defense has every opportunity to be a top 15, top 10 defense. And I'm excited about this defensive line. 
the linebackers seem to slowly but surely getting their things together. And sure, there's a breakdown in the back end. That's what is going to happen when you play as much man as Bud does. But I just love I, – I'm really happy with the defense. I mean they kept getting put in short fields and being done no favors, and they played about as admirably as I think they could have played. And Jalen Hurd and Josh Dobbs are – they're monsters on the ground, period. I will say that. I'm going to continue to say that throughout the year. Some of those tackles where people were getting dragged along, you're getting dragged along by one of the most powerful quarterbacks in the, in the nation, in my opinion. And with Jalen Hurd, he may be tall, but he is also powerful as well. Oh, man, he never went down, man. He was, he was running hard. He was one of the few Tennessee players who, from the beginning, was playing hard. Right. And so you're going to give up some yards there. And to give up what we did, I don't think is that that bad. I would have loved to see it lower, but I don't think it was that bad. It's kind of funny in this game. You look at the stats. We had more yards, 400 to 330. We were 6 of 13 on third down. Uh, They were 3 of 13 on third down. We led in time of possession. It all came down to the turnovers, man. And this is why at, at the very beginning of the pod I said I felt a little foolish is because I thought this game was going to go like 2014 Ohio State, and unfortunately it went like 2015 Ohio State in that if you really think about it, the big Sam Rogers play at the beginning of the Ohio State game, you know, we're we're winning at the half. You know, we're winning at the end of this first quarter against Tennessee. Brewer goes down. J.C. Coleman fumbles last year. You know, every time we got momentum in that Ohio State game, we couldn't get it going. Look at the final scores. Ohio State 42, Tech 24. Tennessee 45, Tech 24. I mean, the games were so similar. And no one could have predicted we were going to put the ball on the ground five times. And I, if we had just put it down maybe twice, we w- might have won this game. And where I come full circle is it's too early to judge Fuente. It's too early to judge what he is going to do in this offense. But if you come out from day one saying that, especially with – the selection of the QB, that ball protection is going to be one of the number one factors, which is what Fuente has said from the beginning. We want to see people that protect the ball. And in my mind, that applies to the whole offense. If you're going to put that out on the table and then your first two games, you're going to have this many balls on the ground, then there's something needs to be fixed in practice. And it's not a judgment of Fuente. It's an observation based on what he has said is important to him in an offense so it's time to buckle down and cut this shit out because it doesn't need to be happening. And there's going to be rare instances, like people have said, that somebody puts a helmet on the ball and it pops out. That's going to happen. That's football. That's not five times. No. It's not nine times in two games. I heard the stat today. Nine lost fumbles. It's the most of 647 NCAA football teams. That's D1, D2, D3, 1AA, whatever you want to call it. We're the worst in 647 teams. Well, now, it's got to change, and it's got to change fast because we're playing another really good defensive team next week. Well, I think we're, I think we're just about to get there. Let's do it, man. We got Boston College next week. We know what they bring to the table under Adazio, and that has been... 
typically strong offensive line play and very, very strong defensive play. Last year, there was a little bit of a difference with that. Boston College went 0-8 in ACC, and that was despite having the top defense in the nation, largely because their offense was so bad, their offensive line was so bad, they, they couldn't score any points. Bring, they're bringing in a new offensive coordinator. You might have heard of him. His name is Scott Leffler. That should inspire confidence, I would imagine, for the Eagles. He, he's familiar with Adazio from their time at Temple, and so they have a little bit of a history of having a good thing going. But I'm not thinking that this offense is going to take a giant step forward this year under the direction of Scott Leffler. Or at least we hope that it doesn't kick off to a great start because how much would that suck? We lose him to a team with no <laughs> offensive firepower, and then all of a sudden he starts putting it together. That would be a dagger to us. Yeah, I I would highly doubt that's the case, but it doesn't mean that BC as a team can't beat us because of how the, good this defense is. We'll get into defense shortly. Let's talk about their offense because I do think it's going to be a little bit better than last year. And that starts with their QB. Do you know much about this Patrick Tolles character they got from UK? I, I don't know a ton about him. We covered him a fair amount as a transfer in during our initial previews. He seems like an interception machine. He's kind of a, he's kind of a slinger. On, he's got a huge arm, but he likes to spread the ball deep that's where he feels comfortable and where he should feel less comfortable is probably deep because he's throwing the ball all over the place at least in the times that I've seen him I watched the GT game he actually had a halfway decent game when I watched him in against Georgia Tech and I think he had an all right game against UMass I think he's at a interception total of two on the year maybe three on the year thus far so he may be calming down a little bit. Maybe Loeffler has been working with him. I think a lot of people compare him to Logan Thomas during his bad years. Big body, can run, slings the football around. His presence in the pocket, while he has a lot of stature, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily deliver it where it's supposed to be. Other than that, I don't know a ton about him, only that watching him play when he is – Playing well, and he did a bit during kind of that second quarter into the third quarter, a little bit in the fourth quarter for BC against Georgia Tech, which is the game I watched. And I hope nobody watched the UMass game. He, When he's high, he's playing pretty well. And maybe that's indicative of what he's going to do this season. But his reputation is one of not having very much accuracy. I completely agree in every sense. And to to give you the info on his touchdown and interceptions, he's got two touchdowns passing, two two interceptions, and one rushing touchdown this year. And if you go back to his UK days, he had 24 touchdowns and 24 interceptions. So he's still even right there. This guy is the ultimate in inconsistency. And if you look at his QBR, something I brought up when referring to Gerard Evans earlier, he has a lower QBR so far through these first two games, albeit it's two games, lower QBR through these first two games this year than he had in any of his full seasons at UK. And he's you know a full senior now. 
That's what I call the Scott Leffler effect, regressing as you get older. Leffler has no clue how to develop a quarterback, and it's evident again in Patrick Tolles. Yes, he did show flashes in that Georgia Tech game, but the kid can't play. He's just not that good. He had nine touchdowns and 14 picks last year. I mean, he's playing for Kentucky, so sure, the surrounding cast isn't great, but whatever. New team, same story for Patrick Tolles. John Hilleman, the running back. Now, this guy is someone we need to watch out for. 1,000 yards in his career, 15 touchdowns coming into this season, and four four yards per carry. He's got another four yards per carry this season, had 102 yards against Georgia Tech. And not that their defense is anything great, but he's a bruising back, six foot, 224. And with three starters back on the offensive line, a little bit of improvement, Hilleman could have a nice year for them and actually give Tolls a fighting chance. Right. I think tackling is going to be a huge part. It's part of every game. But in this game in particular, bringing Patrick, not just getting pressure, which pressure, as long as it leads to interceptions, is fine. But getting that guy to the ground is going to be a bear. He's a pretty big dude. And John Hillman, when the way he runs, he's a little bit frightening. He he can play, and I think he could cause us a little bit of trouble in the way that he's played if our tackling is not as good and he's anywhere near as strong as either one of the characters that we just saw against UT. we got to be careful with him. That's the running attack of him is the only thing on this offense that really frightens me other than the fact that finally BC actually returns an offensive lineman, which they haven't done in a while. And they have three coming back. So their offensive line did look a little bit better against GT than it has in the past, which was nearly non-existent. Yeah. Last year, their offensive line was so bad. The only two wide receivers I would say to keep an eye on for are Jeff Smith and, uh, Callanan, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, Callanan is 6'4", 240, big guy, already has seven catches and 100 yards on the season, and Jeff Smith has eight catches and 124 yards on the season. And Those are basically Tolls' main targets, and he he will have a quarter where he plays really, really well. I'm not doubting that Tolls will have a streak here or there, but with our secondary and our defensive line, I don't expect it to last too long. B.C., is already at 106 in the country in total offense, and that's with playing a Georgia Tech and UMass defense. Not exactly a murderous row. Let's move on to the BC defense. They were number one in the country in 2015. Number one. This year, they're already number three through the first two games. They held both UMass and GT to really low yardage totals. Despite the fact that they lost Don Brown from Michigan, he's that now Michigan's new defensive coordinator. Their front seven is going to be at the top of the ACC when it's all said and done. They've got a couple of nice playmakers in Landry and Guptafel on the defensive line. And even though they lost Steven Daniels at linebacker, Milano and Connor Strahan are absolute beasts as linebackers. I would put these linebackers right up with Reeves, Mabin, and Kirkland Jr. of Tennessee. They are extremely good. I'm scared of this defense. I was decided not to use another S word in, in our podcast. We're going to keep it to only one. This, I would argue, if I was going to lay down a bet of who's going to end up in the top five right now in defenses at the end of the year, I'd pick BC again. 
it just looks so good while they're out there. Their linebackers just know where to go. They create pressure. Strahan had a tackle where I think he hit somebody against GT in like it was like negative thirteen yards or something <laughs> like that. That you know how much work that and it was not it was under center. This wasn't like scrambling type type situations. I think it's going to be the best defense that we face all season. Wow. I think that by far, and that includes UT, even though if UT was playing at the level that they should have been, it would probably be on par. They were supposed to – they an improved GT team with a very experienced quarterback and the triple option threat, they held to 17 points. UMass to seven. I don't know what happened in that game, but it was probably – a BS touchdown of some short sort, but their linebackers are scary. And we talked about it in the preview, both of these guys, they are pretty frightening. Mulatto has two sacks, 14 tackles, three and a half tackles for a loss. Strand has two and a half sacks, 14 tackles, six and a half tackles for a loss. Interestingly, one of their key players that we thought was going to be good. And I think a lot of people did was their defensive end, Harold Landry has been quiet. If he comes out in this game, that's just another threat to us. And right now, we aren't even seeing what that guy can put out on the field. And they also have a pretty good cornerback in John Johnson, who we mentioned during the preview as well. And he's got three pass breakups. He, you know, it's it hasn't been great. But then again, look at the talent that they've played and who – has been throwing against them. GT passed a decent amount in that game, a lot more than they normally would, and in fact had some success in the past game. But I'm frightened of this defense. I think this game's going to come down to our offense at the end of the day and how emotionally consistent they can remain throughout because these guys can eat you up. They really can. I mean, that front seven is, is tough. They held UMass. Held isn't even the right word. UMass had negative 23 rushing yards. Negative 23. They've given up 96 total rushing yards on the season, and they played Georgia Tech, who does a triple option, (laughs) through two games. 96 rushing yards in two games. This front seven is sick. And to finish on the secondary, Moore is a shutdown corner. Yee Adam is is a returning cornerback who's pretty good. Johnson, you mentioned back there, he had 45 solo tackles this year. He likes to hit. I mean, Strahan, the, the, the guy we've already talked about a bunch of times at linebacker, he's leading the nation in tackles for loss at six and a half. Leading the nation. This defense is every bit as good as Tennessee's. And like you think they're better? They very well could be. They haven't played very tough competition yet. But they are damn, damn good. And... It's a question of picking our spots against this team. So let's get in. Let's get into the uh, keys of the game, I suppose. The overall stuff. BC was young last year, and they sucked on offense. They're capable of getting to a bowl. I don't know if if that's going to happen based on their offense. Their defense is good enough that it could drag them there. As far as the game goes against us. I think we're going to put up a, a enough points to beat them. I'm not sure it's going to be more than 20 or 24, but I think 
there's no way they're scoring 24 points on us. I would agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. I think it comes down to staying positive. There's going to be negative yardage against this defense. There's going to be an issue. There's probably going to be a fumble or an interception, maybe a couple of each or, you know, one of one, two of the other. And stay positive. Remember, keep the resolve. Go after it. And also make them throw the ball. That's going to be the key. It's going to be contain. Don't let Hillman run the ball and start getting momentum. We need to shut that down and see what actually ends up happening when Patrick Towles starts having to throw into what's a pretty good, decent secondary and very much better than what he's played against in his first two games. I think with those two things in place, we should be good and getting rid of the penalties. There's no reason to make stupid mistakes in this game. This is a game you can absolutely win, clean that stuff up, and get it out of your system. Hopefully it's already gone. Well, if you fumble four times against BC, we're going to lose this one too. That's a, like that's what it comes down to. I mean, fumbled four times against Liberty, five times against Tennessee. If you do it again, you're going to lose. So God forbid we put that kind of product on the field again. We do want to do some picks, and we'll pick this game first. And I guess while we do that, we'll summarize our thoughts on it if we haven't already. Before we do that, Robbie, what are you drinking? I went with the Dorado, not the El Dorado, or the, uh, I guess, Dorado watermelon that I had before, which is a very similar beer. That one was a watermelon for the summer. I'm transitioning or trying to transition into fall as much as I enjoy the summer kind of lighter beers. It's a double IPA. It's Ballast Point Brewing Company, which we've had on the show. I've had on the show numerous times. And not afraid to say that I'm a big Ballast Point fan out of California. It's good. It's nice, but it's it's heavy. It's definitely a transition into fall from summer. You don't want to be drinking this out in the in the heat. I like it a lot. It's good. It's got a nice nice hoppiness to it. Not a lot of malts. Kind of my bread and butter. I like it. How about you? Name again? Dorado. The first one I had on, it was a couple, I guess it would have been a couple, three weeks ago, was the Watermelon Dorado, which was a similar beer, but they spiked the hell out of it with watermelon. It was pretty good. So it has a similar flavor without the watermelon in it. Ballast Point does like to take their their main beers and then kind of make them all different flavors. I've noticed that about them. But they do, in general, make a lot of very, very tasty beers. I am drinking the Sneaky Pete Imperial IPA. And yes, that is my name. And of course, so I'm a little biased as to how much I like this beer. Someone had bought me this beer, I want to say two years ago as a gift because they thought the label was funny. And I loved it. I happened to find it in a store maybe a month ago and bought it again. They only sell it in 22 ounces. That's the only size I've seen it in. It's called Sneaky Pete. It's by a brewery called Laughing Dog Brewery out of Idaho. And on the label is a little French bulldog. And I think the reason it's called Sneaky Pete is because it's 10% alcohol. So it sneaks up on you. But like Robbie said last week, he probably had one of the highest rated beers he's he's had on the podcast. This is going to be my highest rated beer I've had on the podcast. And it's not only because it has my name. 
It's because it's a 10% alcohol beer and it drinks as smooth as a Coors Light. I mean, I can't, I don't know how else to describe it. It's one of the best IPAs I've ever had. And obviously it's an Imperial if it's 10%. It's very, very good. The Sneaky Pete Imperial IPA from Laughing Dog Brewery. If you see it in the 22 ounce bottle, spend the extra money and buy it. It's very, very good. Let's move into our picks. We're going to start with the BCVT game. VT is at home and they are a six point favorite. I've picked VT the past two weeks in a row. They haven't hooked me up either of those weeks. <laughs> but I'm going to do it again because I'm just a sucker. I like VT with the six points. I, I don't like BC's offense nearly enough to keep it that close. I don't think there's any way, knocking on wood, that we will give up four fumbles or more again. And we will win by seven to ten points, and we'll get our first ACC win. Robbie, what do you think? I have, I have, I have the same. I have VT. Probably going to get burned by it again. Everything that we wanted for this season is still on the table. As much as it was a struggle, we didn't botch it against Liberty. I had us with the loss against uh, UT. And we did, and we didn't cover, so I missed on that one. But I feel like this should be a 10-point game. I feel like it's going to be low scoring, but I think we can put up 26 or so points, something along those lines. That'll give us – I don't know if they're going to put up 16 against our defense at this point. If they're only putting up 17 against the – or 14, I'm sorry, against the Georgia Tech defense, I just can't see it being much more than that. We obviously agree yet again. We'll see if VT can finally cover a spread for us. Let's move through the rest of these quickly. Miami at Appalachian State in Boone, which I'm shocked Miami's actually going there for a game. This is going to be fun. Miami's a three-point favorite, and they're number 25. I had a hard time with this game. I'm going with the Hurricanes uh, with the three points. At three and a half, I like App State. At three, I like Miami. Whatever. What do you got? Same. A lot of people are talking up Appalachian State. They are very good this year from everything I've heard, read. Miami's looking pretty good so far this season, so I I think they'll cover it. All right. Next game. Big, big game in the ACC. FSU at Louisville. FSU is number two. Louisville is number 10. And FSU is the favorites by two and a half. Again, coin flip game. I could have gone either way on this one. If you're giving me three and a half, I'm taking Louisville all day. At two and a half, after how they showed up against Ole Miss, I'm going with FSU at two and a half point favorites. I should pick Louisville. They've destroyed everybody i don't think as i don't know what's actually the record for touchdowns but they're on pace to exceed that so far i think this season it's got to be it's got to be fsu though they have to be able to pull this off there's so much talent on that team louisville returns a lot of starters but i feel confident that they're going to cover the two and a half but i agree it's going to be close and this game's going to turn into a shootout. I think FSU is going to have to make another comeback in the second half if they're going to have a chance in this one, but I think they will. Yeah, and we've seen that with Louisville and FSU at Louisville two years ago with the Jameis Winston where 
they almost they almost blew it on their way to the college football playoff, and they ended up coming back and beating Louisville. Next game is Bama against Ole Miss. Bama's number one. Ole Miss is number 19. Ole Miss has beat them two years in a row. As we all well know, if you follow college football, you know Bama is hurting to get a win against Ole Miss this year. Bama's 10-point favorites. And I had underlined Bama. I'm going with Ole Miss. I I just think that they're not going to lose by more than 10 in this game. I think... Whatever it is, maybe it's the ECU thing against us. Ole Miss has a little something on Bama, and I don't know what it is. So I'm taking Ole Miss to cover the 10 points. I'm taking the same period three years in a row. I've also picked Alabama. Well, not- are you picking Ole Miss to actually win the game? No, no, no. You're just taking no. the points. I'm just, yeah, I'm just, just the curious. Points. No, gotcha. just the points. And I think at the end of the day, they – I picked Alabama not to cover two two weeks in a row, and they've covered both times. I'm just going to go a third year, third week in a row and hope that they don't cover the spread. I think they're going to keep winning because they are monsters right now and last year. But this game, I think Ole Miss is going to cover. Yeah, me too, man. Michigan State at Notre Dame. Michigan State's number 12. Notre Dame's number 18. Notre Dame is a 7.5-point favorite. I like the Spartans. What do you got, Robbie? I have the Irish. So it's the Irish versus the Spartans. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Let's see how that war goes. Ohio State at Oklahoma. This is a really fun interconference matchup early in the year. And Oklahoma obviously has already lost to Houston, but Ohio State, number three, Oklahoma, number 14. And Ohio State is a favorite by one and a half on the road. I'm going with the Buckeyes, even on the road, even as the favorite. Oklahoma, I didn't like what I saw in that Houston game, and I could be dead wrong, but I'm taking Ohio State. What do you got? I have a twist arm on this one because my wife is an OSU fan, so I don't have a choice. I'm just kidding. I think OSU is going to come out. I'm not that excited about Oklahoma this year, and I know a lot of people are. I think OSU is going to pull this one out. They've looked really solid. A lot of young, young talent on that team. Frustrates me. I wish we had a lot of young, young talent on our team every year. But I think they can pull it out again. And Oklahoma is really not exciting me this year. All right, next game, USC at Stanford. Stanford is number seven. They are nine-point favorites. And I'm going with Stanford because USC looks lost to me. And Stanford at home on the farm, nine points. I'll take it all day. What do you got? 100% agree. Stanford's a solid team, solid coach, solid running back. I'm going with that all day long. I don't know what USC is this year after that first game when I picked them to beat Alabama. Last game we're going to do is uh, one of our ACC friends. We've got Pitt at Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State coming off that tragic referee botched loss to Central Michigan. But OK State is still getting six points. They're still the favorite against Pitt. And it is in, what is that, Stillwater? Yeah. I uh, 
I'm going to go with OK State. I haven't liked the way Pitt has looked the first two weeks, uh, either against Villanova or Penn State, even though they had a nice lead against Penn State at one point. And Oklahoma State, you know they're going to be pissed. Uh, I'm going with OK State. I think that's a good pick. I'm not going with it. I'm going with Pitt. If the Pitt-Penn State game was 35 or 25, 24, something lower than it was, I can't believe those two teams – put up up in the 50s for a game. So it leads me to believe James Conner and everybody coming back is giving them a lot of confidence. So I'm going to go Pitt. I'll probably be wrong. Oklahoma State can put up massive points in any game they step into, which frightens the hell out of me. I guess I'm just hoping that Narduzzi slows them down. All right. That is it for the picks. We want to say our piece on our uh, on our next game or what happened in Tennessee. I, I I'll go first. I want to tie Tennessee up in a bow and you know put it in a coffin and bury it because that game was super weird and without those fumbles or without the egregious penalties and you know. Really un-Virginia Tech-like performance in terms of the penalty aspect especially. We're right in it, and it would have been nice to compete a little bit more, especially in the second half. I think we're going to show what we're all about against BC. I think we're going to clean it up, and we'll kind of flex our muscles a little bit and be like, we are the team, or at least we are a team in the Coastal to be worried about. My only thought is I would not want to be an offensive player this week practicing in just Fuente's system because they are going – they have to be going balls to the wall, especially with the comments that he didn't see a lot of energy last week and how that may have fed into the loss. Uh, that's not something that you want to be hear, hearing, something that a coach doesn't you know necessarily want to say, but at least he was being honest. And he called out his players, either show up or shut up. And I think this is that week, and I think they're going to show up. The only other one that I think it was that I think we wanted to talk about was we got a question in from Nathan Grella. You think we should hit that real quick? Sure, sure. He asked us a couple questions about what was going on during the Tennessee game. And fair enough, because there were some weird things happening, offensive line, uh, you know, Chung was in there for Gallo and uh, Pettit was in there for for Teller at certain points. And we knew that was going to happen. And Vance Vice expanded on that a little bit today, I think uh, Robbie was telling me. And there's two there's two answers to this. One, I think we can't answer some of those questions, like why Trevon Hill was in there over Seth Dooley when Mahota went out. But I think it might have had something to do with what side of the field they play. Also, I think that Trevon Hill showed a lot of promise, and that might be part of the reason why. And as far as the offensive line thing, why don't you handle that? Well, I think – well, you know, one of the other things he said was, you know, in an up-tempo offense, you you got to be able to spell these guys, which I think is a half answer to the, the question that was asked to us, which is why are they why are they starting, right? It's one thing to swap in players. It's another thing to have them starting – what I think is 
and this is a complete guess because this is one of the hardest things to know is why these things are happening behind the scenes. It is that Fuente and the entire team is letting everybody know how how things are going to be split out, and it's going to be based on effort. It's going to be based on practice, and it's going to be based on performance. And if you have a tough game or you're playing like like shit for a game or you're 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 not showing effort in practice, Fuente is letting everybody know his tenure is not one year. Fuente's tenure, he's hoping, and I'm hoping, is multiple years, if not longer than that. And he wants everybody to know that comes into this system, especially the young guys, not just the older guys, that if there's something going on and you're not showing the effort or you're not showing you know what it takes to be the starter, he's more than happy to put somebody else in even if it costs the team a little bit. And that's counterintuitive to what football is. But the fact is, is that Fuente, he has this year to get things in order. And if he doesn't get them in order from a person personnel standpoint, from a personality standpoint, from an effort standpoint, it's never coming back. Year one is when you set the tone. And he's coming in, and I think he's setting the tone for what it's going to be like in this system, which is come out – you give your every best in practice and you give your best in games. Don't make dumb mistakes and you're going to play, period. Yeah, I mean, look what the struggle that Charlie Strong went through in his first year at Texas last year. He had to kick a bunch of guys off the team and the boosters were mad and the fans were mad. But you have to set the tone. And Even coming into the season, as much as a homer as I am, I knew it was going to take a little time for this team to gel and come together and with every one of these moves that Fuente is making that kind of speaks to that because he's trying to establish this is how I want my football team to be run and I'm hoping that as that gels more and more and more if we can just work through these kinks and get a win against BC get a win against ECU Syracuse UNC whatever as it goes on and on you'll start to see it accelerate more and more. The identity will come on more and more. We'll see less of this other guys starting and stuff, and the team will take off, and it will be exponential. That's what we're hoping for. We got a little long there. I think we both set our piece. Thanks for listening to the podcast, as always. It's at 2DVT on Twitter. Send us any questions or comments. Email. It's 2DVT at gmail.com. We will answer your questions, as you know. You might have to stick around to the end of the podcast, but we will answer the questions. Always. And if you want to write us a review on iTunes, go for it. We always appreciate it, and we want to hear your feedback. So until next week, when we're hopefully recapping our first ACC win of the year and our first win over an FPS team, go Hokies. <laughs>